0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future.
1: This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. The Department of Justice has opened a new and old line of attack against Donald Trump. Why you should read The United States and Britain in Prophecy, by Herbert W Armstrong. I look at the relationship between Iran and Russia. Ukraine's 400-mile strike against Russia. And is our world too sophisticated for food shortages? All this and more coming up next on Trumpet Hour.
0: Hello, I'm Philip Nice. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, July 21st. Our four Philadelphia Trumpet writers are with us once again this week, each covering a corner of the globe. In studio are Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. Connecting with us from our office in England is Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And connecting from our office in Jerusalem is Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. This week we'll lead off with the region of Anglo-America. Andrew Miller, can you give us a rundown of the top stories in your region?
2: Yes, newly disclosed emails prove that Dr. Anthony Fauci knew that researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were conducting risky gain-of-function experiments. Uh, Democratic presidential candidate Robert Kennedy Jr. delivered a powerful opening address before Congress denouncing the un-American practice of censorship. And Barack Obama posted a letter to Twitter defending sexually explicit books in public school libraries.
0: So I find myself saying this week after week, but I feel like either one of those, any or any one of those, you could really spend your whole segment on, uh, and I hope we do find out more about some of those things. But this week you've got something that's even more important than those things.
2: Well, or definitely something I wanted to to focus on just cuz it is so crazy that it looks like um Donald Trump is about to be indicted for the third time. You remember at the beginning of the year he was indicted for hush money payments he had made in New York uh and then not long after that he was indicted again by um Special Counsel Jack Smith for keeping um documents from his presidential days at mar-a-lago in florida well now on tuesday jack smith uh, sent him another letter informing him that he is a target in a federal criminal investigation involving the the january 6th protest i'm sure all our listeners have <laughs> heard a lot about january 6th um January 6, 2021. Uh, just in recap of what happened that day is uh, Republicans had a plan. That's the day they met to certify. Congress certified the results of the 2020 presidential election. Uh, some Republicans had a plan to um, protest the certification uh, legally in Congress. Every time when you whenever you a uh, congressman issues a protest against uh a certification result. You have to debate it for two hours. Uh, they had up to a hundred congressmen ready to protest, which is 200 hours of d- investigation in Congress and election fraud. And so <laughs> uh, what happened there is uh, the the Democrats got some uh, some Antifa supporters and Ray Epps and some other people to uh, stir up enough turmoil in the, the protest outside that they actually evacuated Congress, shut the whole, shut the investigation down, scared the other protesters into not giving their protest, and tried to paint it like it was a coup. Uh, so now that's what they're investigating Donald Trump for. They're they're getting ready to indict him. He's just got the letter so far um, for conspiracy to overturn the the 2020 election. Interesting strategy. Uh, that they've, uh, they've they've come up with here, I think what they're trying to do is, I mean, between Nancy Pelosi's January 6th commission, it's not like the January 6th thing has not been thoroughly investigated. If they were going to indict him and put him in prison, it would have happened a long time before now uh, on that charge. But because it takes about six months before these indictments go to trial, and the Republican primaries where the Republicans pick a candidate happen between January and June. Uh, basically all through the Republican primaries Donald next year, Donald Trump is going to be in and out of court fighting three separate indictments, one for hush money, one for classified documents, and one for conspiracy to overturn uh, an election. And so it, um, <laughs> they don't have the evidence to imprison him on any of those charges, despite what CNN may, may tell you. Uh, but they definitely— um, are going to try to get him as much bad publicity as they can while the Republicans are trying to decide to nominate Trump or DeSantis or Pence or whoever else is running this year.
0: So he was already – President Trump, when he was president right at the end of his term, was already impeached for incitement of insurrection. This is basically the same charge but against him as
2: a civilian, I assume? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I guess it'd be the same. Yeah, he was already impeached for that. That I had forgotten about that temp- briefly. But so yeah, this is basically the same charge as a civilian. And like I said, I can't get too detailed into the charge because they actually haven't made it yet. They're preparing to. Like I said, he received a letter informing him that he is a target in a broader federal investigation of January 6th, being led by the same special counsel, Jack Smith, who indicted him for the classified document. So Jack Smith definitely seems to be the, uh, the 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 Obama administration's point dog on the the Get Trump campaign,
3: and apparently, I did actually look into this briefly. Uh, and I guess it's because because I was like, well, isn't that double jeopardy? Jeopardy? He's already been indicted for this. You can't be tried for the same crime twice. Uh, apparently, the U.S. Constitution says specifically states that if you're indicted in office as a president, you can still be subject to court proceedings. So I guess that is what the difference is, that it's the same offense, but before it was Congress, and this is the judicial system.
0: Right, and apparently the Justice Department has said, Jack Smith, do whatever you can to bring whatever you can against Donald Trump. Like <laughs> He seems to have a very, very broad uh, authority from, from the Justice Department. It's, it seems like just a naked uh, attempt to, to as mister Stephen says on the Trump Daily program, get Trump. You know, get get him one way or the other for one thing or the other or the same thing we've already prosecuted him for and investigated him for. And I remember, we all remember the events surrounding the 2020 election. And and this this issue has ebbed and flowed a little bit, but there was certainly times where it seemed like, uh, well, that election is now in the rearview mirror. That January 6th was kind of an ugly thing, but Trump is now out of office. And it seemed to be kind of wrapped up at sometimes, and yet, trumpeter editor in chief Gerald Flurry has has repeatedly emphasized that that election uh, emphasized that President Donald Trump was the legitimate winner of that election, and that he would not go away; <laughs> he would be he would be coming back.
2: Yeah, this this is the main reason we're watching that story so closely. Is the the prophecy we've talked about so many times on this program and. Uh, 2 Kings 14 verses 26 through 28 about God saving Israel from bitter affliction by the hand of an end-time Jeroboam. Uh, In our editor-in-chief's book, America Under Attack, he identifies Donald Trump as the end-time Jeroboam. And so we're letting Bible prophecy inform our news analysis that Trump is going to temporarily save uh, America from this deep state that's uh, taking hold of it. And so, uh, and in some ways, in some ways, I I think what the, uh, what Jack Smith's doing could really backfire on the Democrats, because uh, there are a lot of Republicans who wouldn't normally be Trump supporters, like there, there's some things about his personality, there's some things about his past that they find off-putting, uh, yet they do support Trump uh, despite those things uh, because they they view him as the only political candidate who can take down the deep state. Um, and so now you get all these uh, all these indictments against him where the the deep state's just throwing everything they have at Donald Trump, and it's kind of like trying to pull a nail out of wood by hitting it over the head with a hammer. You are just drive – you have the one reason the Republicans are supporting him, and then you keep proving again and again and again and again and again and again again that he's like the one person the deep state fears. And so – if they if they used a little bit of reverse psychology and tried to convince America that Trump was part of the deep state, they might get rid of him. <laughs> but as, if they they just keep these blatant assaults, it's like you're just going to convince more and more Republicans uh, and more and more conservatives that he's the. Uh, uh, he's their guy to do that and um, which does really just bolster uh, mister Fleury fluury's been saying that since Trump was first elected in 2016 that he was going to kind of be the guy to to take down the to take down the deep state and we, we we definitely see that that like no matter no matter how much they throw at him the the republic they just just kind of keep railing around him as that focus as, as the as the one person that can um, try to weed out some of this uh, just endemic, corruption and political prosecution that you really don't really see in, you usually don't see in a first world country. It's like maybe someplace like um, Ukraine or Honduras or something like that, you see this type of disbiased political prosecution, but it's just a really a shameful thing that this is happening in America.
0: An article titled, What Will Happen After Trump Regains Power? And that is by Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry what will happen after Trump regains power. So not only will Trump regain the presidency, but this article title says it can tell you what will happen after he does. Andrew Miller, thank you for that update. On to Europe now, Mr. Palmer, You now that you are back in your home country of England with more of a front row seat toward Europe, what have you been noticing in the news this week?
3: Bit of an unusual one from Germany where violence in swimming pools is becoming uh, one of the biggest hot topics. There's been a big outbreak in uh, attacks at swimming pools, staff being attacked, families being attacked. uh, And of course, it's a big political dividing line because it's migrants, uh, especially from uh, Muslim migrants from Chechnya, from Syria or Afghanistan that are behind a lot of these attacks. And the mainstream media is very reluctant. They'll sometimes get into it, but they're very reluctant to get into that aspect of the story. Of course, it's then become politicized with the Alternative for Deutschland, usually the only party that's willing to talk about that kind of thing. The Christian Democratic Union is talking about it uh, now. So you're getting uh, more politically charged rhetoric around migrants, and that's going to impact German politics, push them in this more kind of catholic christian strongman direction as someone can deal who can deal with this violence that's been imported from abroad uh german troops have arrived in australia they're halfway around the world but uh it's more evidence of uh this uh the the kind of the western american-led world trusting in germany and looking to them to help with their defense a key trend that you're uh you're going to see more and more as as Britain America Australia even kind of put their trust in Germany and the bible says that trust is going to be betrayed uh Europe is also freaking out we have this unusual yellow thing has appeared in the sky i believe it's called the sun we saw a lot of it in oklahoma but we're much less used to seeing it in england uh there's a just a a, a bizarre push from weather forecasters to get people to freak out over summer uh, all across europe i think this is happening maybe even in weather channels in the united states to a certain extent uh, so you've had um uh, just even the way that they color their maps normally it's colored it used to be colored like a nice green color with some smiley faces when the weather's going to be warm <laughs> now it's a very sh- scary shade of red i saw where britain was colored in this kind of warning orange colour. Uh, and the weather forecast was about, I think it was about 55 degrees Fahrenheit, what they were forecasting. That is, I guess, scary orange summer for for England, apparently. <laughs> uh, you know, stay indoors, beware, it's 55 degrees outside, make sure you don't get sunburn. Uh, you know, that's the kind of coverage. And that some weather forecasters have quietly been shifting to reporting ground temperature instead of air temperature. So all of this is to make... Uh, yeah, because because the ground, as you, if you, if it's a sunny day, and you've ever kind of touched a black pavement, you'll know the ground can heat up a lot more than the air, which is why weather temperature, the standard is, ah, uh, the temperature in the air about six feet off the ground. They've switched quietly to a different standard, so there's a a big push to get people much more concerned about climate change, and uh, to even, I mean, it's almost like climate type lockdowns. They're trying to use this to p- persuade people not to travel. Uh, and there are government documents talking about how they need to work with weather forecasters more to spread fear. And and I think we've seen that kick into overdrive this this summer.
0: So the migrant crisis coming out of the headlines and into your everyday life if it's summertime in Germany and you're at the pool. And then there are a lot of things to concern you, to fear, in fact, and we cover a lot of those on this program, but uh, that what you're describing there does have echoes of of manufacturing and generating fear now you've got the main story that you want to bring us from europe why is what is the main story and why do you regard it as the main story
3: so we had a a meeting between europe and celac this kind of carib caribbean and latin american community and okay it's a meeting but it's a pretty big deal because it's the first time they've had a meeting since 2015. This is not some regular annual thing. And it's a sign, I think, of fundamentally changing warming relations between these. There is a push from Europe to sign a trade deal with Mercosur, this uh, trading bloc that includes some major Latin American countries. And there was initial hopes to get this deal finished on the sidelines of this CELAC summit. That didn't happen, but st- Europe is still hopeful that they're going to get this done by the end of the year. And there were important uh, steps on that. You had Europe with Ursula von der Leyen promising 45 billion of investment into Latin America and the Caribbean. They're looking to, if you want to uh, uh, kind of respond, be respond to the future and and dominate some of these battery manufacturing industries and these kind of things, a lot of those resources come from Latin America. And so this is an important push for Europe. So important, actually, that that, that Europe is willing to throw the UK under the bus. So one of the pieces of paper, the deals that were signed at this, talked about Las Malvinas, the Argentinian name for the Falkland Islands. So Argentina claimed these Falkland Islands. Uh, it's a pretty ridiculous claim without much basis at all in in fact or evidence. And Europe is going along with Argentina with Argentina's claim. Now that's pretty remarkable. Okay, Britain's left the European Union, but most of Europe. These are Britain's NATO allies. You know, these are meant to be in this kind of closest military relationship. And meant to be on Britain's side if Argentina were to invade the Falkland Islands again, uh, and they're siding with siding with uh, Argentina. So that's it's a sign of how weak their loyalty to Britain is, and a sign of how much they want to get this Mercosur deal done uh, and want to draw closer to Latin America.
0: So, that is a summit between the European Union and, as you say, CELAC, which stands for the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States. And as you said, on the one hand, it's just a meeting, and there are other such meetings, of course. Uh, and they, this meeting didn't announce any big military pact or even economic pact. But you do bring out an important point there about the Falkland Islands. I mean, this is a, a site of a war, as you've said on this program. I mean, the British uh, fought for this uh, possession and. Uh, other than them being located close to Argentina, Argentina has very little uh, to do with them. So for NATO allies, which, as you say, would be obliged to help Britain in the event of war, to to be uh, almost willing them into Argentine and <laughs> uh, our Argentine uh, sovereignty, uh, it just it reminds me a little bit about the the uh, the weather thing you were saying. It's it's like the will. We just will it to happen. We want to will it into existence.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I think basically the Argentinian claim there is: we were once ruled by Spain. Spain once claimed the Falkland Islands, therefore, the Falkland Islands are are ours. But I think there's a an important prophetic connection both with the Falkland Islands and with this move into Latin America. Trumpet editor in chief Gerald Flurry had an article on. Europe and Macosso, and the reason why this is a crucial deal to watch back in March 2019, and the title of that article is "America is being besieged economically." So uh, he tied directly, uh, he tied this article directly in to specific Bible prophecies about Europe besieging America, Europe cutting America off from world trade, and I think we'll talk a bit more about those prophecies in the second half of the show. But if you think about you know, if you want to bring down a country, cutting them off from world trade is a very quick way of doing that. And if you look at American trade, well, so much of that comes around the Gulf of Mexico. It comes from these areas covered by CELAC, you know, covered by the Caribbean and Latin America. The majority of America's waterborne trade comes up through the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and so if you want to besiege America, you have to have a deal with Latin America. And so when Europe's getting into this, they're looking at, well, securing access to their own raw materials, making sure they can't be besieged. And I think that's maybe step one in them moving into, into Latin America. But the Bible warns us, well, step two is looking at cutting off the United States from world trade. And when you look at these prophecies about a siege, well, they're referring to the United States and Britain. Uh Herbert W. Armstrong has his book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. I mean, if you're a regular listener to this show and you've not read that book, I would really encourage you to go and read that. Even if you're not really a, a reading person, it's a very easy book to go through. And he just gives kind of evidence after evidence after evidence that Britain and America are descended from Israel in Bible prophecy. You know, the old testament talks so much about israel it has so many specific prophecies about israel and if the nations of israel just kind of went into captivity and disappeared or if the nation of israel in the middle east this nation of judah uh, this jewish state if that is the entirety of israel there are a lot of bible prophecies that are simply unfulfilled and wrong for your bible to be accurate there have to be some pretty powerful nations of israel out there and mr armstrong shows how this is britain and america and so the, there are specific Bible prophecies that talk about uh, Israel being besieged, America's going to be besieged, Britain too. And so Mr. Armstrong talks about in that book the way Europe would turn against Britain. And you see that starting to happen with the Falkland Islands, with Las Malvinas, as they decided to call it. And if you're going to cut Britain off from overseas trade and America, well, what are you going to do? You're going to grab seagates, grab island bases and choke points that allow you to control world trade. So in kind of both of these aspects of this story, you see Europe setting themselves up to fulfill these prophecies, these fundamental prophecies, and besieging the United States and besie- besieging Britain as well.
0: America is being besieged economically. That's the title by Mr. Gerald Flurry. And he bases that on The United States and Britain and Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong. Cannot emphasize that particular book enough if, if world news and, and world history seems like this great, big, confusing, unknowable thing, read the United States and Britain in prophecy. It changes how you understand, not just the Bible, but how you understand uh, history leading up to this point and what you're seeing right now, uh, and as the title says, the future, where, it, where it's headed. So that's your update on Anglo-America from Andrew Miller, as well as your update on Europe from Richard Palmer. This is Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. Due to time zone differences, we are actually recording this segment first with Mihailo Zekic. But by this point, you will have heard Richard Palmer describe the summit between the European Union and nations from Latin America, as well as Andrew Miller, who covers the United States of America and what have become ongoing trends here. Cover ups, censorship, sexual perversion and targeting the one man willing to challenge all of that. And in our final segment panel discussion, we will cover Ukraine, Russia and the global food supply. But right now we want to go to Mihailo Zekic in Jerusalem for his update on the Middle East.
4: Yes, uh, it's been a pretty busy week as far as Middle Eastern news is concerned. On Tuesday, um, U.S. President Joe Biden hosted Israeli President Isaac Herzog in Washington. Uh, there's a few interesting things th- that came out of this. Well, for one... You're seeing the mainstream media say the silent part out loud. Um, I was reading an article in the Jerusalem Post about this earlier, and they talked about how Biden clearly was reading from like cue cards or some kind of notes, and most a lot of what he said was incoherent. Um, obviously, we've talked a lot about his uh, cognitive decline and how a lot of uh, media cover for that, but they're starting to call a spade a spade at this point. The day before, Pentagon spokesman John Kirby announced that Biden will finally meet uh, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, the Herzog meeting, Herzog is, uh, has very little political power, but he's more closer to the Israeli left. And so a lot of people, obviously we've covered on this program before how Biden has so far refused to meet Netanyahu in a snub. This was sort of seen as a compromise meeting with Herzog. But it uh, looks like there may actually be finally a biden bibi summit coming up uh but they also were very vague or the u.s government was very vague on when and how where this would take place and a lot of people suspect this might be on the sidelines of an important united nations meeting coming up next or later this year which would still be quite a bit of a snub compared to netanyahu being invited to the oval office will this we'll keep tabs on this story and see what as more details come up, and then on Thursday, uh, we talked a bit on, on this program about this uh, the whole Muslim world getting angry with the Swedes uh, because of one man burning a Quran. Uh, the same guy applied to burn a, the, another Quran again in Sweden, and this time, Iraqis once again stormed the Swedish embassy. Uh, this time, instead of leaving right away, they set fire to it. And the embassy staff had to be evacuated. Iraq has said they were going to charge these uh, um, individuals that did this. But the guy in Sweden that said he was going to burn the Quran did it again. And now Iraq is saying they're withdrawing their ambassador from Sweden and kicking the Swedish embassy staff out of Iraq. So this saga just seems to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger for some reason. I mean, this kind of stuff happens in countries like France all the time. For some reason, everyone wants to gang up on Sweden. So we'll see what happens with, uh, again, this ongoing saga.
0: So the especially the relationship between the United States and Israel uh, catches our attention, uh, as well as the relationship between Europe, um, Christian Europe, and uh, Muslim, the Muslim Middle East. But you've got a different story as your biggest story this week.
4: Yes, it might be one that's easy for people to overlook, but it certainly does help explain a lot of what's going on regarding news trends and uh, why we, shall we say, watch for certain blocks to form up. Uh, this is, an uh, like the other stories I brought up, an ongoing story. Two Mondays ago, Russia held a meeting with the Gulf Cooperation Council. That's an intergovernmental union comprised of... Uh, Saudi Arabia and most of the Arab countries in the Persian Gulf, like the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, etc. And they released a statement supporting an Emirati claim to several islands in the Persian Gulf that are currently controlled by Iran. There's been some sort of confusion as to who legitimately owns the islands. The British used to own them. They promised them to the Emiratis. The Iranians, during the years of the Shah, took them over claiming historical legitimacy. To that point, they've been Iranian, but um, the Emiratis have still had a claim over them. And Russia has just endorsed the claim, saying that they should, uh, Russia and Iran should take the circumstances to the International Court of Justice. Iranians, I don't mean the Iranian government. I mean Iranians on the street, even opposition figures outside the country that don't like the current regime, they've been ballistic about this, saying, no, these are sovereign Iranian islands, etc., etc., the Iranian government themselves have been quite muted about this. Like government owned papers have been saying, "There's no point rocking the boat. Russia's a partner, etc." And uh, hardliners, uh, without uh, outside of the government in Iran and also in the opposition, are saying, "How could like? Why is Iran cow to Russia? Like, look at look, this pressure they're putting on us." And then this Monday, Kamal Karazi, who is a foreign policy advisor to the supreme leader, there, Ali Khamenei. Uh, had a meeting with the Japanese ambassador in uh, Iran uh, talking about how Iran should give more support to a claim that Japan has on some islands right now that are currently controlled by Russia. So you're seeing this tit-for-tat escalation. I, I mean, so far it's just words and statements so far. But the big reason why I wanted to cover this story was if you look at a lot of the mainstream news, they'll talk about how... Russia and China, or, or Russia and Iran are new best friends and China's in there too. Uh, Iran was recently invited to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, for example, China's economic block. Ru- Iran's helping Russia out in the war in Ukraine. They're talking about how there's a new block forming with Iran and Russia and all these other Asian countries. The Trumpet uses a prophecy, again, that we go to all all the time, Daniel 11, verses 40-44, to 44, to talk about Iran. And that prophecy talks about Iran being its, in its own block. It's the king of the south, and it has its friends in the Middle East and Africa, but the countries like Russia and China, they're talked about in a different block in that same prophecy, the kings of the east. We expect these two countries to not be part of the same group. In fact, people keep calling Iran Russia's friend at this point. By the time the whirlwind comes in Europe, invades Iran, Russia leaves Iran out to dry. So there's going to be some sort of cooling of relations between these countries. Something is going to cause them to not be that friendly anymore. So this might be the start of that. We don't know. But one way or another, we don't expect Russia and Iran to be buddy-buddy for too much longer. And just to clarify, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to see Iran and Russia all of a sudden become enemies or like not cooperate with each other or anything like that. But Bible prophecy does state that technically they are part of two different blocks, which means at some point they're going to, even if they may still have relations with each other and still be relatively on each other's side at some point their interests are going to dictate their policies more than any common hate of the west and that kind of thing if our listeners would like to learn more there's a friends article we have on the trumpet uh, why the trumpet watches iran and europe heading for a clash of civilizations um the main focus is there is on iran and europe rather than iran and russia per se but at the same time it talks about why we expect iran to be headed out on a block of its own and to be leader of a block of its own rather than one pawn among another general group of Asian countries.
0: So, this is really why we are looking at certain countries, not others, certain disputes, not others. There are certain things we know from history, from what is forecasted in the Bible, uh, from what we see around us right now. So, go to trumpet.com and the trends section. And look for why the trumpet watches Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilizations. We're looking for each of those to be in their own um, blocks and, and Russia to be in its, its own block. That's why we've divided the globe into its four regions that you hear every week on this program. And uh, so, yeah, the, why the trumpet watches Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilizations. Now let's go to those kings of the East, so to speak, in the most vast of our four regions, Asia. Jeremiah Jacques.
1: Yes. uh, One story here. A U.S. soldier has defected to North Korea. This was on Tuesday that a 23-year-old U.S. Army private who had been stationed in South Korea bolted across the border into the north this crossing was totally unauthorized it appears that he was maybe trying to escape punishment for some crimes that he had committed in south korea Um, and the north korean government has not yet publicly acknowledged that they have this man but this is really a gift to the north it's the first time an american soldier has defected to the country in more than 50 years and I think that we could see this soldier become kind of a bargaining chip that uh, the North can use to extract some kind of concessions with. The next story here is an update on Chinese hackers. A new report about this uh, you know, came out, and the main conclusion was that China is almost certainly capable of carrying out cyber attacks that would disrupt critical American infrastructure, including with our rail systems and oil and gas pipelines. So pretty chilling analysis there. And then another story here about Russian President Vladimir Putin. He was supposed to be attending a big meeting in South Africa with the BRICS nations soon. But the trouble is South Africa is a signatory to the International Criminal Court. And the International Criminal Court has recently issued an arrest warrant for Putin over his role in abducting and trafficking Ukrainian children. So there's been quite a lot of back and forth between Putin And the South African leadership for a couple of months now, South Africa keeps on, you know, telling Putin not to come, just join us via video link. Um, And he kept on telling South Africa to just ignore the International Criminal Court's ruling and, and not to arrest him. So that was going on for months. But this week, first of all, Putin threatened South Africa with war. If they wouldn't let him come. But then the very next day, he seemed to kind of realize that he didn't have a choice and that South Africa apparently didn't have that much of a choice. So he blinked. He said he will not travel there. So it is a, it's a blow to Putin's prestige and it's a blow to this image of unity and strength that uh, the BRICS project tries to project.
0: So in the panel discussion, we'll look, we'll talk about one aspect of the war between Ukraine and Russia, but can you give us just an overall update on, on how that's been going this week and in these past few days?
1: Sure. Yeah. It has been a notable week for Russia's war on Ukraine and Ukraine's attempts to push the Russians out. Uh, The biggest news is that on Monday, Ukraine attacked the Kerch Strait Bridge. The Kerch Strait Bridge is the single most important piece of logistics. In this whole war. It connects mainland Russia to Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula over that Kerch Strait. And this bridge is the main piece of infrastructure that Russia uses to get troops, weapons, fuel, and other supplies, not just to Crimea, but from there to the war's other fronts. Russia does have other routes in eastern Ukraine, you could call it the land bridge um, that it can use for some resupply, but Ukraine has consistently attacked these land routes, especially the railways on them. So Russia really can't use those anymore. And that makes the Kerch Strait Bridge immensely important to the Russian war effort. And this is actually the second time the Kerch Strait Bridge has been hit since the war was expanded into a full scale conflict some 18 months ago. In that first attack back in October, the rail part of the bridge was hit. Uh, Part of that rail side has been repaired in the months since then. So rail traffic is now partly operational, but only for light cargo. So there's still some serious constraints. Uh, you know still happening from that october attack and then the attack this week was on the other part of the bridge the passenger vehicle the the road part of it you could say ukraine used a drone boat to get a bomb under the bridge and and carry the attack out they actually had to sail this boat for about 10 hours over at least 400 miles of sea to get it to the bridge so that shows i think some pretty impressive capabilities there and satellite images show that as a result of this attack one section of the road has completely slumped over, and the other section has been displaced. So on the, uh, the displaced part, they've, they've done some repairs over the last couple of days, and smaller cars are apparently able to go over a little set of ramps that they've set up there. But big trucks can no longer use the bridge at all. So that really hinders Russia's efforts to rearm, refuel, and replace troops. And this is uh, it's quite a humiliation for Putin on a personal level. Because the annexation of Crimea, you know, and and the building of this massive bridge out to Crimea was just central to his image. Those were the glory days for him. And, and, you know, it's central to this image of prestige and power that he tries to project. So it's a humiliation for him. And it also has big implications for Russia's overall war effort.
0: If the Russians prove unable to get this line repaired fairly quickly, uh, and who knows, um, that's a disaster for Russian forces. They're all already under extreme pressure from the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have already hit a number of bridges uh, and road and rail connections in and out of the northern part of Crimea, which was already constraining uh, the Russian logistics. Now they can't bring anything fresh at all at scale.
1: That was geostrategist Peter Zion there. And that analysis that, that he just mentioned, that calls to mind the old quote: the old quote from Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon said, the amateurs discuss tactics, the professionals discuss logistics. So, you know, logistics is massive in a war like this, especially as the months keep dragging on. And with the attack on this bridge, the question of logistics just became considerably more complicated for Russia.
0: And everything that, speaking of logistics, everything that you want to move uh, to where it needs to be in a war effort is heavy. (laughs) It's, It's all heavy. And uh, they're not able to move a lot of heavy things through these important uh, uh, logistical routes. Uh, So we have heard about Ukraine's counteroffensive. It's always described as the long-awaited counteroffensive. It now actually is in motion. Is this part of that, and how is that progressing overall?
1: This is part of it, and this this counteroffensive is gaining a bit more momentum this week. For the month that it has been underway, though, it has been slower than most would have imagined. Um, but the gains by Ukraine, even though they're not happening at the rate of the counteroffensive in Kharkiv last year, they've still been steady, and they're apparently starting to pick up a little bit of speed. But there are new reports now just from yesterday saying that the Russians may now have as many as 100,000 troops assembled in the east preparing for a counter 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 attack i may have lost count of all the counters there but in either case this could be the makings of a big russian push near the kharkiv area or it may just be a russian plan to lure ukrainians away from places like kherson zaporizhia and the bakhmut area so that ukraine's counteroffensive in those places Loses steam. It's hard to say for sure what the plan is, but uh, the Russian government also made a big announcement this week. They've extended the maximum age at which men can be mobilized to serve in the army. It's gone up by at least five years in every category. And in the case of the highest ranking officers, they can now be mobilized up to the age of 70. So, you know, it does show that Russia's having some manpower troubles. And a lot of this is because Putin wants to avoid a full mobilization. He also wants to keep on using mostly ethnic minorities in Russia rather than the main ethnic Russians. And this new measure will help him get a lot more men out on the battlefields, even without changing those tactics. But uh, but again, all of these Russian efforts may not amount to much if the Kerch Strait Bridge can't be repaired quickly, because all those troops can't really do much if they can't be resupplied at scale. So, it's hard to know uh, where it goes from here, but we'll be watching closely.
0: Both sides suffering quite a bit, and, and the future, though, imminent is obscure, as Churchill said. Looking a little bit for, farther into the future, though, we've got some something more solid to stand on. Uh, what are we looking for there?
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry believes um, because of his view of Bible prophecy that whatever happens, Vladimir Putin will stay in power and actually go on to lead Russia and Asia in much larger wars than this one. So that's uh, mainly because of a prophecy in Ezekiel 38, which talks about an individual called the Prince of Rosh. And Mr. Flurry says Putin is this prince. So because of that, he says we should expect Putin and his regime to survive the war. But that being the case, When Mr. Flory last wrote about this in the Trumpet's June-July 2023 edition, he did leave room for Russia to lose this war. I'll just read a little bit of this article. From what I see in prophecy, we should expect Russia most likely to win the war. However, even if Russia loses this specific war, it's conceivable that the nation could regroup and Putin could remain in power and still lead Asian nations in future wars, which means the overall prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39 will still come to pass. So, you know, most likely there will be a Russian victory. And of course, Russia has firepower far beyond that of Ukraine, a population three times the size of Ukraine's. So all of that would make it hard for Ukraine to stand up, especially if the West withdraws its support, you know, and who knows how much longer western support will remain especially if the us elects a president who is more pro putin more pro russia like like donald trump is so there's uh not much that we can say for sure but this is uh changing the world in many ways and there's there's a lot for us to keep a close eye on well thanks for that update jeremiah jacques
0: the ukraine war will not start world war three is an article you can have a look at that, that focuses in on this subject uh, the Ukraine war will not start World War Three, as well as the prophesied Prince of Russia. Both of those at thetrumpet.com. Uh, the prophesied Prince of Russia at thetrumpet.com/slash/literature. Welcome to our final segment of this hour as we complete the weekend review. It has to do with Ukraine, it has to do with Russia, and it actually has to do with the food on your plate. Jeremiah Jacques,
1: can you introduce this for us? Yes. Russia made the decision this week to withdraw from an international deal that has allowed Ukraine for the last year to safely ship its grain out of the black sea ukraine of course is nicknamed the breadbasket of europe that's because of its very abundant production of wheat corn barley and other food products millions of people around the world depend at least partly on ukraine's food exports just to have food on their plates um, every day so so this agreement that was brokered a year ago was quite a big deal. And now Russia's decision to end that agreement is also significant. Um, And Russia appears very adamant about this. Government authorities announced that any ship visiting any of Ukraine's Black Sea ports from now on would be viewed as carriers of military equipment and targeted accordingly. That went into effect starting at midnight local time on Thursday. And that announcement added quote, the flag states of these ships will be considered parties to the Ukrainian conflict on the side of the Kiev regime. So, you know, basically they're saying if you help Ukraine export any of its uh, food, we view you as a belligerent in this war. And then as if all of that were not enough, Russian forces launched several missiles and drones at Ukraine's Black Sea coast, on Tuesday and Wednesday. This was a major targeted attack, specifically targeting Ukraine's port facilities that are critical for agricultural exports. And uh, the attacks destroyed at least 60,000 tons of grain and also damaged quite a lot of storage infrastructure. So the war on Ukraine is not enough, or Perhaps it's just not going well enough for Russia. And so now the Russians are also declaring war on global food security, using food or the interdiction of it as a weapon. And the Russians actually make no effort to hide this. Margarita Simonia is editor-in-chief of RT. She's kind of a ubiquitous presence on Russian TV. And in a broadcast yesterday, she said, all our hope is in the famine. Here is what it means. It means that the famine will start now, and then they will lift the sanctions and be friends with us because they will realize it is necessary. All our hope is in the famine. So it's a, it's, it's a pretty stunning development, and, and it really does look like they're weaponizing food.
3: I think that quote really does get across the kind of the strategic nature. You know, this is designed to be a war-changing uh decision uh the telegraph had an article today putin's evil new weapon could win him the war uh which i don't think it's maybe big enough on its own to do that but that's the kind of level that we're operating here it's a major ramp up in economic warfare uh where the idea behind this is so russia is trying to shift the blame for this onto the united states and onto those attacking them Uh, It's it's saying, look, we're stopping the oil because you're stopping ammonia getting to us. You're cutting off some of our uh, traders from the swift international banking system. Uh, Stop this this kind of economic war and we'll open up the grain. And he's going to be Putin's going to be going to Africa and going to these other countries and saying, you know, sorry that you're suffering. It's America's fault. Now, whether they they kind of swallow that or not remains to be seen. Uh, But that's the message that he's going through, And so the idea behind this is trying to kind of undermine the economic warfare against Europe to, uh, I mean, against Russia to undermine and divide Europe. So to try and get Europe to uh, to move away from this economic warfare, to come to some kind of more open break with America and an accommodation with Russia, there's the potential to split Europe as well, because. Uh, a lot of Ukrainian grain. If it can't be swept overseas, it's got to go through Poland and Hungary. And these countries are becoming fed up of cheap Russian grain because it's cheap because they can't sell it any other way, kind of undercutting their own farmers. That's leading to a lot of division within the European Union. So it really is a push to, you know, it's, it's a new front in the war. It's a new way for Russia to try and win this and to get Ukraine's overseas allies to abandon them and to bring in what might seem completely unrelated to you we've got that massive news from America about the uh you know Joe Biden being exposed and Barisma and um you know, some of this blackmail that's been going on between energy companies and uh, and and Joe and Hunter Biden and you have to wonder you know how much of their support for Ukraine is because they're being blackmailed into it I think there's a pretty compelling argument that supporting Russia is a good deal for the United States and a, a sensible strategic option. Uh, but the Democrats don't tend to make decisions because they're sensible strategic options. Uh, is there another angle here? And perhaps uh, you know the, the the leaked information from the FBI confidential human source said that. You know, Ukraine's and the Burisma has the receipts on all of this. They have all the information that it's there to be blackmailed. You know, has Joe Biden been in blackmailed into his support for Ukraine? And if we're going to see all of this exposed, how much is that American support for Ukraine going to continue? So you, you, you kind of put a few of these together. Grain may be splitting off European support, that splitting off American support. This is part of a concerted campaign to try and isolate Ukraine from its foreign help. And if that happens, Well, then, yeah, you could see Vladimir Putin win the war very quickly and uh, potentially even see total defeat for Ukraine. I think there's a strong argument that for America to support Ukraine is a very sensible strategic option, uh, undercutting America's, you know, one of America's biggest threats with a relatively small investment compared to uh, America's annual military spending.
4: Of course, when it, when anything happens with the global food supply, especially something as basic as wheat, I mean, you can't expect that to just stay localized or to just start impacting, you know, a handful of African countries that are on the fringe or like some European countries. This is going to impact the world. Never mind the fact that Ukraine is, as Jeremiah brought out, the breadbasket of Europe. I mean, once you start tampering with wheat, especially with such a major supplier, the prices of everybody else's wheat is going to start going up. You have less wheat coming in from the normal source and everything else around is more expensive. Who does that impact most of all? It doesn't impact countries in Europe that are generally pretty wealthy or can handle their own with agriculture. It impacts most of the third world. I mean, when people don't have food on the table to eat, when people don't have something as basic as bread. You can expect, you know, let them eat cake revolutions to start coming up. Uh, a country you've talked about on this program quite a bit is Egypt. I mean, not only does Egypt import roughly a little bit under 10% of its grain just from Ukraine, it is also, as of 2021, the world's single biggest importer of wheat. I don't know what the 2022 statistics are but bread is just so important for this country of tens and tens of millions of people that's mostly desert that doesn't have that much land to actually grow food to feed them that the government has to keep subsidizing more and more and more of it of bread just to be able to feed its own people we've already had two egyptian revolutions just a few years ago I'm just using Egypt as an example because it's a pretty good example and one we've covered up before. We expect regime change there. At some point, we expect um, an Islamist regime aligned with Iran based off of Daniel 11 to come into Egypt. But I mean, that's what Egypt's thinking. What are some of these other countries like India that import a lot of wheat thinking? Maybe they're a bit more stable than Egypt or like some of these other countries, especially in the Middle East, where you don't have that much uh, arable land to help your people. Is that going to start causing regime change in some of these places? Is that going to start getting more countries say on America's side? Because look what Russia's doing to us—we are at, at our last straw. We need to start tagging onto countries. You're going to see huge geopolitical shifts because of this, especially if it's prolonged, just uh, because of the the wheat ban.
0: Well, Russia has starved nations before. This has to—I mean, doesn't this have to have horrifying historical echoes? the Great Famine in the 1930s was in Ukraine, and it was caused intentionally by Russia. So this isn't just empty uh, words by any means. Uh, the The issue of, of food security, as as you said, Jeremiah, of, of just the ongoing food supply, a lot of us, a lot of our listeners don't have to fear or worry or even think of having enough to eat. But that is because there's a very vast and complex uh, food supply system. When that is being attacked by drones and missiles and and high tech military equipment, that is going to have consequences. It's it just has to have consequences. So the food supply is one of the most. I mean, there it, could there be a more important uh, strategic uh, element to to life globally than the food supply?
4: And not even just, like, the food supply in general. We're not talking about, like, going without pineapples for a month or something like that. We're not talking about not being able to order your filet mignon with your truffle sauce at at Outback Steakhouse or wherever. We're talking about the, the most basic uh, uh, type of food that people have depended on for thousands of years. We're talking about... Uh, like what generally people measure as like the basic unit of food Uh, you know when people are thrown into prison talk about having bread and water what a but there's no bread anymore this is and never mind you use grain maybe people shouldn't be doing this per se but using grain say to feed livestock what's going to happen to all these farms when these cows and sheep don't have any more food to feed them It's not just tampering with food. per se. you're tampering with the building block of our whole economic food system. And once you get that, everything else is going to be affected. And if it goes on long enough, everything else will fall apart. That's right. We think of our society as
0: advanced, you know, hey, we have smartphones, so we're really past all that, you know, scraping by trying to just have enough to eat, not knowing where your next meal is coming from. But this shows in in very real, very current terms with with historical precedent that modern nations can people in modern nations can starve and in fact they can starve by the millions
3: this is a tactic that's been used again and again throughout history like everyone's been saying you know it's used in ancient warfare when you besiege a city and try and cut it off and make sure they've got no food it was used in world war ii when nazis tried to sink all uh use submarines to try and sink food and other resources coming into Britain. and Winston Churchill famously said it was the only thing that scared him during the war. Uh, To be fair, Britain also did the same against Germany in World War I, World War II. Cutting off food supplies played a major role in Germany's surrender in World War I. So it's not just uh, an ancient tactic. It's something that happens in the modern world. It's happening right now in Ukraine, and the Bible says that it's going to happen a lot more In the future, there are pretty horrifying and specific prophecies about the nations of Israel coming under siege, these modern descendants of Israel that Mr. Armstrong talks about in in the United States and Britain in prophecy. The Old Testament has lists of blessings that God would give these nations, and those blessings have been given, but we've not listened to him. And so there are promises of cursings as well, and a lot of these curses revolve around extreme economic warfare to as you could maybe put it in a more modern language um, or in ancient language a siege besiegement and so what we're seeing in ukraine is russia using a siege using economic warfare to get their way more and more countries are thinking about this and uh the bible says exactly that this is going to happen and we've written a lot about this one place where you can go if you want to Really dig into what these Bible prophecies say about that is uh, superpower under siege, chapter five from our book Ezekiel, the end time prophet, uh, and that will take you through just one uh, passage that describes this modern day economic warfare uh, that the Bible describes in ancient language. So you know through some of these activities and uh, some of this warfare, you know you can see that these tactics prophesied in your Bible are coming next, and actually. What we see playing out now on a relatively small scale is a warning of what is to come to modern Britain and America if we don't turn back to God.
0: That was Superpower Under Siege, a chapter in a book titled Ezekiel, the End-Time Prophet by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. That is our panel discussion. That is our Trumpet Hour. Continue to email us your thoughts on the program and on the issues we cover on the program letters at trumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. Thank you to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. And most of all, thank you for listening to the Week in Review. We look forward to being back with you again next week on the Wednesday edition of the show, as well as, of course, the Friday edition of Week in Review next week here on Trumpet Hour.